Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ellen, yellow or blue? Uh, yellow. Uh, take the first step or don't fail to try? Oh, take the first step, definitely. Got it. Well, maybe both. And maybe then we should say what we're doing here. (laughs) Yeah, right. We're ordering socks. Socks with inspirational quotes from a website called Feb's Boutique. It was named for our favorite new suffrage star, Feb Byrne. I love this woman. Feb, that's F-E-B-B. And only discovered her when we started putting this podcast together. Feb is one of the unsung heroes of our right to vote. Her motherly advice at a crucial moment in 1920 turned the tide. Without it, we might not have gotten the right to vote for who knows how long. Every time I think about what she did at the 11th hour. Wait, wait, wait. Let's not get ahead of the story. It is so dramatic. We need to tell it from the beginning. That is the beginning of the end of the suffrage campaign. I'm Lynn Scher. I'm Ellen Goodman, and this is She Votes, our battle for the ballot. It had been a long, tough fight. By the beginning of the 20th century, three generations of suffragists had fought, demanded, and lobbied men for the right to vote. But over time, the movement had gotten mired in politics and indifference. There's just nothing happening. Elaine Weiss wrote the widely praised book, The Woman's Hour, chronicling the heart-stopping final weeks of the fight for woman suffrage. She became our guide to that moment, starting with the sluggish advance in the late 19th century. A proposed suffrage amendment, once hoped to be the 16th, was first introduced in Congress in 1878. And it sits in Congress for 40 years. And every year, the suffragists trudge up to Capitol Hill and testify in whatever committee is holding hearings that year. And it's put in a file cabinet till the next year. It's voted down in Congress or in committee 28 times. The turning point was World War I, when American women marched into the workforce as citizens and patriots while men fought overseas. It was an international reckoning. If women were doing men's work, they surely could join men at the polls. Germany had already given the vote to women, as had Russia. And certainly Great Britain gave the vote to a portion of its women. So even our allies and our enemies had given the vote. And the suffragists used this as a cudgel against Congress and said, aren't you ashamed? Remember, by 1919, women had already won some voting rights in 27 states. 
senators and congressmen suddenly were pushed to expand suffrage for everyone. And so all of this pressure coalesces to finally, finally force the amendment uh, through Congress, and they finally get the president on board. So now they're forced to finally pass it in June of 1919. And when they finally do get it through Congress, they know that they're facing uh, a difficult situation. The nation is ablaze. There are very vicious race conflicts in many cities. There's a lot of angst about immigration. If this sounds familiar, it should be. They are facing many of the decisions that our nation is facing today. But it comes out of Congress in this very fraught atmosphere. And three quarters of the 48 states in the union have to agree. That's 36 states needed to ratify to make the amendment official. The initial reaction was encouraging. There was this very sweet race to be the first to ratify. And three states, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan, put messengers on a fast train to Washington to hand deliver their ratifications to the Secretary of State. By July, a dozen more states had joined them. And then the rush to ratify slowed down. Was there a deadline? No, there was not a deadline, but there was a sort of psychological deadline and a political deadline. We're going to be dealing with a presidential election in 1920. And so you have the nation turning away from the progressive era. It was becoming more insular. It was becoming more conservative. In fact, they were losing momentum in the spring of 1920. And they really feared. They, they would not be able to get it through in their, perhaps in their lifetime. By July 1920, they needed only one more state, one final legislature to ratify the amendment granting women the right to vote. If they failed to get that 36th state, there might be no chance for decades. The next state willing to call its legislature in session was Tennessee. The suffragists are very unhappy that it turns out that Tennessee is their last best hope. They had a pretty uh, robust suffrage organization, but it was riven by both political and personal rifts. And so you had suffragists who wouldn't talk to the other suffragists. And then it got split a little more with women joining Alice Paul's National Women's Party, the more radical wing of the movement. So you had suffragists fighting suffragists, suffragists fighting anti-suffragists, a looming election season, and all this in Tennessee, an already politically divided state. The suffragists and the anti-suffragists realized this is going to be the battle. This is going to be where the amendment is either finally fully ratified by the 36th state or is fails. And so the suffragists send all their troops in, as do the anti-suffragists. So on the same night in mid-July of 1920, the, the women who will 
be the, the sort of generals of the fight, of the battle that is looming, arrive in Nashville. The cast of characters was something like out of a superhero movie. Carrie Chapman Catt, 61, president of the largest group, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, protege of Susan B. Anthony. She's a master strategist and politician and orator. And she comes down to lead the campaign, to strategize, to work with the Tennessee suffragists, try to whip them into shape, get them unified, and inspire them to, to make this what's going to be a very grueling fight. And she writes uh, to, to her colleagues, I don't see a ghost of a chance of ratification in Tennessee. Sue Sheldon White, 32, a native Tennessean, Sue was the lieutenant of Alice Paul, who ran the more radical National Woman's Party. And she's nervous and she's excited. So now you have two women's organizations with the same exact goal, which is getting the Tennessee legislature to ratify, but they're working totally separately. They have separate staffs, separate headquarters in the same hotel, and separate strategies. And yet they're moving towards the same goal. There was one more major player, Josephine Pearson, leader of the anti-suffragists in Tennessee. She is a, an academic. She's a political science professor and a dean at small, mostly Christian women's colleges, daughter of a minister, and truly believes that feminism is going to destroy the moral fiber of the nation. You know, they fear women are going to leave, abandon their families and leave the home. Ellen, it is amazing how those true womanhood arguments retained their power into the 20th century. And these differing approaches all converged under the same roof, Nashville's Hermitage Hotel. They were all staying there along with many of the lobbyists and politicians they were all bumping into each other all day and night. Imagine the dirty looks. But for the first couple of weeks before the legislators moved in, all these women and their teams were out trying to secure the lawmakers' support. They are spreading around throughout the state and trying to find the legislators who are in their homes at this point and track them down climb up the hills, plunge into the hollers, knock on their doors, and get them to sign pledges that they will pledge to ratify. And of course, the anti-suffragists are trying to get them to sign pledges that they won't ratify. Carrie Chapman Catt and her suffrage troops knew that winning a Southern state would take more than their usual arguments to convince men to share power. They are also dealing with the concept of male chivalry in the South, where men were supposed to take care of their lady folk. They were supposed to know what was best for them. And you have the idea that women might shake up by their votes the status quo. And the Tennessee legislature was beholden to certain special interests, corporate interests especially, that were very frightened about this idea of women having a voice at the ballot box. It was just going to disrupt the the way they did business in, in the state. And 
Then there's religious precepts. There, there are clergymen who are railing from the pulpit that this is going to be the moral downfall of the nation. They use the Bible to fight against ratification. So this is what the women are facing as they come into Tennessee. Kat and her colleagues were in the nastiest political fight of their lives. So they pulled out all the political savvy they'd learned over generations. They have card files on all of the legislators, and this is true in Congress too, and both the Women's Party and the National American have opposition research files taken from research in the field. They go to the local suffragists and say, okay, tell me about your congressman. And they write, well, he has a liquor problem. He likes the ladies. He's in debt to the following banks and does their bidding. They have all that information. Armed with that knowledge, Kat confronted local suffrage leaders with a key question. Okay, now let's get real. How many of these legislators are prone to bribery? How many of them are dirty? We want to have uh, a, a list of all the men in your legislature who you know are susceptible to bribes. And so she keeps two sets of books. She is such an adept politician. So one is the official, yes, I promise I will ratify. And the other set of books is the ones where she knows uh, and the suffragists have told her, the, the Tennessee suffragists, oh, don't trust that one. If the railroad wants to bribe him, he'll succumb. And then there were the more frivolous but equally effective tactics. There's a definite charm offensive. The suffragists sort of gather all the prettiest young suffragists and parade them through the lobby to show, and this is a political tactic because the suffragists for years have been portrayed as ugly, mannish, spinsters. You know, why would a pretty woman ever advocate for suffrage? She should have a man. And the Tennessee suffragists have learned how to counteract that. Both sides wooed the lawmakers, taking them out to dinner to prevent opponents from lobbying. But the anti-suffragists refined the tactic. With prohibition in effect, the liquor industry worried that the women's vote would reinforce anti-alcohol laws. So the antis played into that fear. They partnered with their whiskey-making pals to create a source for constant cocktails. And that came to be called the Jack Daniels Suite. It's a speakeasy established on the eighth floor of the Hermitage Hotel, where, remember, everyone is staying. And it dispenses liquor morning, noon, and night to the legislators and gets them drunk, hopefully to miss the vote. And so the suffragists are forced to gather up the, their allies who've gone up there to, to get a free drink and throw them in the shower and sober them up in order to go into the chamber to vote. It sounds like slapstick comedy, but it, it changed votes. And it wasn't the only thing that changed during this final showdown. Some former leaders of the national organization turned against the movement in the name of white supremacy. White women who were, as Elaine Weiss tells it, more Southern than suffragist. And they do not believe in a federal amendment. This is states' rights issue for them, as well as a racial issue. They want the vote for white women only. They actually form their own like Southern white women's suffrage organization. 
they come to Tennessee to work against the 19th Amendment. At the same time, black suffragists in Tennessee were actively working for the amendment. But with segregation in full rule, they weren't allowed inside the Capitol offices to lobby. So they were working in partnership with white colleagues. These colleagues had to convince racist lawmakers to support an amendment allowing women of all colors to vote. Tennessee is the home of the Ku Klux Klan, and the Klan is enjoying a resurgence in 1920. So you have a state which is definitely Southern in its animosity towards its black citizens. And they say, well, look, you know, if you allow women to vote, there'll be more white women voting. It's not gonna upset the apple cart. It's not gonna um, mean the downfall of white supremacy. Don't get all bothered about it. Just give us the vote. Is it politically smart? Yes, it is a politically astute move. It is morally terrible. But the suffragists know if they place black women in the forefront, if they say, look, this is going to give all women the vote, they're going to lose the ratification vote in another Southern state. It has already torpedoed it in uh, most of the other Southern states. Carrie Chapman Catt put it this way to a friend. Women are here, she said, appealing to negrophobia and every other caveman's prejudice. Men, lots of them, are here. We believe they are buying votes. We are terribly worried, and so is the other side. Even if we win, she said, we who have been here will never remember it with anything but a shudder. August 17, 1920, the night before the vote. The next day, the legislature would vote up or down on the 19th Amendment. The vote would determine whether American women could fully participate in democracy. The lobby of the Hermitage Hotel in Nashville was jumping. And the suffragists can't sleep because they know that they don't have the votes and the anti-suffragists are jubilant that they may have really stopped this amendment. The Speaker of the House has flipped. The publisher of one of the two major daily newspapers has also flipped to the anti-side. The suffrage margin for ratification has eroded completely. It looks like ratification is going to be killed. And Carrie Catt, the great crusader, the great campaigner, always an optimist, confesses to her colleagues that she doesn't see a way that the amendment can be passed. There is one more thing we can do. We can pray. Throw some bedding on a bunch of different mattresses and sure, they all look alike. The same goes for pillows. But peel away the layers, look at what's inside, and you'll see they are not all created equal. 
That's what makes every purple pillow and mattress unlike anything you've ever slept on. The purple grid sets the purple mattress apart from every other mattress. It's a patented comfort technology that instantly adapts to your body's natural shape and sleep style. With more than 1,800 open-air channels designed to neutralize body heat, Purple provides a cooling effect other mattresses can't replicate. And this cutting-edge technology doesn't stop with the mattresses. Every Purple pillow is engineered with the grid for total head and neck support and absolute airflow. So you're always on the cool side of the pillow. Purple's proprietary technology has been innovating comfort for more than 15 years. I could really see it, Ellen, in this little sample grid that they sent us, and it's it's kind of spongy and sweet, and anyway, it's really cool. It, it feels feels nice in my hand. I'm sure it feels great under my body as well. And it's purple, which is your favorite color, too. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. You can try every purple product risk-free with free shipping and returns. And Purple has financing available as low as 0% APR for qualified customers. Experience the Purple Grid and you will sleep like never before. Go to purple.com slash SheVotes10 and use promo code SheVotes10. For a limited time, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash SheVotes10. Promo code SheVotes10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms apply. We want to tell you about a new podcast called The Cut from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, an ensemble of voices from New York Magazine's The Cut led by host Avery Truffleman, engage in the conversations that matter most in our current moment. From a conversation with Ladarius from the Netflix show Cheer about what optimism means in 2020, to examining nature and our relationship to it, tune in to The Cut each week for intimate, probing looks at the world around us. The first episode of The Cut is live now. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. August 18, 1920, Nashville, Tennessee. A hot, sticky morning. Suffragists and anti-suffragists had been dogging state legislators for weeks. The end game of a campaign that had swept across the country and lasted more than seven decades. 35 states had ratified the proposed 19th Amendment. Tennessee was their big chance to get the required 36. Author Elaine Weiss described the scene at the Capitol on the day of the vote. The suffragists were up early and they draped the chamber with yellow bunting, yellow being the suffrage colors and red being the, the symbolic colors of the anti-suffragists, and they are all wearing roses. And it's often called in the press, the War of the Roses. The governor has come around, he's buttonholing um, legislators and making threats and making promises to them to, to get them to ratify. And so you have this incredibly um, tense, 
angry, hopeful, scared scene within the chamber. And then you have all these spectators, thousands of people have come to the Capitol, come to the State House, because they, they realize history may be made today. History was indeed about to be made. What no one could have predicted was that it would come from a first-term, barely-known legislator named Harry T. Byrne. Well, uh, my mother first told me about her great-uncle, my great-granduncle, Harry T. Byrne, when I was in junior high. Tyler Boyd has written a book about his great-granduncle, whom he never knew, Tennessee statesman Harry T. Byrne. Uncle Harry was, at 24, the youngest representative in the Tennessee State House. He grew up on a farm in the tiny hill town of Nyota, where his mother, a college graduate, worked the land after his father died young. Harry's mom was named Feb, F-E-B-B. She was born in 1873, the year Susan B. Anthony was convicted of voting while female. We don't know if Feb ever talked about Susan B., but she sure inherited her understanding of injustice. Uh, she's working on a farm that technically isn't even in her name because after her husband died, the court awarded, of course, the farm, you know, to the oldest children, which were the boys. But even worse than that, the, the farm is being worked by illiterate and un uneducated men who can vote and she can't. Now, that's not to say that those illiterate men shouldn't be able to vote. It should be that everyone can vote. Feb also paid taxes to a government that gave her no say in its affairs. So there was certainly a lot of resentment that she wasn't being treated equally by her own government just because of her gender. She, she, she felt very strongly about that. So, Feb, was she, would we have called her a feminist today? Uh, I think at, at, the, at the time that would be an accurate description. She, was, she wasn't an activist in the sense of uh, participating in a lot of organizations or anything like that, but uh, she kept up with things, you know. She was paying close attention to what was going on in Nashville. Feb was especially focused on what her son, Harry, was going to do. He'd been lobbied mercilessly by both sides. Oh, he, he had a really, really tough time. He left home on August 9th planning to vote for suffrage. He actually told his mother that, and when he got over there, everything changed. He was receiving telegrams left and right from not just people in his district, but from all over the state, because a lot of these uh, agitators, you know, on the anti-side were, were sending telegrams to every legislator, especially the ones they thought were, you know, more um, undecided, like, like the, you know, the young and experienced Harry T. Byrne. Some older, more experienced politicians, rabidly anti-suffragists, according to Tyler, told Harry his district was opposed to women's suffrage and reminded him that he was up for re-election. Never mind that the information wasn't accurate. So with him having received all these telegrams, not knowing that these you know, prominent political figures here in town are lying to him, he's thinking, my goodness, my county really is against this. You know, maybe I need to vote in favor of their wishes, and you know, that's why he starts hanging out with the Red Rose Brigade. Suffragists were furious. They had his pledge, and they counted him as a yay. Back home in Nyota, 
Feb Burns was also dismayed. And you can imagine what's going through her mind when her son goes over there playing to vote for that, and then she picks up the papers and reads his letters and talks on the phone and sees that, you know, he's starting to maybe think, oh, I don't know, you know, maybe I should vote against this. So she knew she had to, to write the letter and uh, persuade him to do the right thing. The letter. A message of persuasion, coercion, <laughs> from mother to son. That's the moment in this part of the story. That's why Feb Byrne is our hero. She wrote him a letter that changed history. Her son received it at 10 a.m. Wednesday, August 18, 1920, voting day. Harry was walking up the steps of the Capitol in Nashville. He has the uh, red rose in the lapel of his jacket. And when he walks up to the legislature that morning, on the steps outside, a, a house page, you know, just a, a small child, a preteen boy, brings him his mail for the day. And, and contained in that sheaf of uh, papers was his mother's letter. Just to note here, Lynn, the letter wasn't even addressed in the kind of detail assuring it might arrive at its destination. Honorable H.T. Byrne, Nashville, Tennessee, State Capitol. No street address, no zip code, <laughs> and a little uh, one-cent stamp with George Washington's uh, picture on it. So he actually read the letter before the legislature convened. He puts the letter in his uh, pocket of his jacket, and he walks onto the House floor. The anti-suffrage majority first tried to gum up the works with some delaying tactics, votes to table the motion and postpone the ratification until January. Suddenly... Unexpectedly, one of the legislative leaders changed tactics. He put ratification itself up for a vote. With so many members voting to delay, he figured they'd also vote it down, or at least get a tie, which under Tennessee rules was also a rejection. But he hadn't figured on Feb Burns' letter to her son, Harry. It was seven pages long, mostly stuff about the family and down-home gossip and a request for Harry to shop for some supplies in town. But in between, she told him not to worry about re-election, not to worry about his career, and then... Out of nowhere, there's no... She doesn't segue into this. There's just all of a sudden to change the subject. Hurrah, I'm over suffrage and don't keep them in doubt. I have been watching to see how you stood, but have not seen anything yet. She's noticed how he's gone back and forth on this thing and how indecisive he's been. And then more chit-chat about stuff, you know, back on the farm. And and then on page six, again, no segue, you know, just completely out of nowhere. Don't forget to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat with her rat. That is ratification. Just a few lines in seven pages. Of all those comments, what do you think is the one that got to Harry at that moment? I think it was the one don't keep them in doubt. You know, it, it comes um, right after, hurrah and vote for suffrage, and don't keep them in doubt. So I think that the words that Harry really, really took to heart was, don't keep them in doubt. Because she knows he's being indecisive, she knows he's conflicted. Harry wasn't conflicted any longer. The letter from his mother hit home. With anti-suffragists ready to celebrate, the roll call began. 
Anderson. Aye. Bell. Aye. Bond. No. Boyd. And then no. Harry's a seventh Boyer. on the roll. No. As Tyler described it in his book, an eye from Harry would put it over the top and enfranchise millions of American women. A no would kill the amendment, probably indefinitely. Burn. Aye. He says aye. And Lynn, it was about as softly as that. Let's hear it again. When he says aye, you know, everyone's kind of shocked and they, they thought maybe he, he had voted wrong, he'd been confused. Well, they were real excited, but they go down the rest of the alphabet all the way to the end. And that's when it registers with them that Tennessee has just ratified this amendment. And uh, pandemonium reigned. That's not my word. Other people have used that word. There's no better word to use. Pandemonium reigned in the House chamber at that moment. Uh, almost uh, deafening screams from the suffragists in the gallery. They draped their banners down, you know, with the purple and yellow and white. And they're screaming and uh, singing and dancing and joy, throwing their yellow roses in the air. And it's just absolute pandemonium. I want a yellow rose to throw in the air right now, Lynn. <laughs> it's only 100 years ago, August 1920. For the first time, the United States of America said women had the right to vote. And we give special thanks to Harry T. Byrne, but more thanks maybe to Feb Byrne. I want to say, listen to your mother, but Harry himself said it best. Our friend Alan Alda, also a great feminist, reimagines the moment when Harry explained his vote to the newspaper. I knew that a mother's advice is always safest for a boy to follow, and my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. I appreciated the fact that an opportunity such as seldom comes to a mortal man to free 17 million women from political slavery was mine. Just over a week later, the amendment was signed into law. On August 26, 1920, the voting population in America doubled. This was not, of course, the end of the suffrage story, or even the Tennessee part of the story. Anti-suffragists were furious and falsely accused Harry of being bribed. Feb was visited by angry aunties who demanded she change her son's mind. Feb brushed them off by saying how proud she was of Harry and went on to vote in the 1920 presidential election. Harry was re-elected to the State House for another term and became a local hero. There is a young man from Nauda who for precedent cares no iota. He sprung a surprise when he flopped to the eyes and enraptured the feminine voter. Tyler Boyd is more than proud of his great-granduncle. I can fast forward, if you uh, don't mind, uh, to 50 years later, 1970. Um, a member of our local historical society told me this, and I got in my book just in the nick of time. She was working in Iota, and in walks Harry T. Byrne, and she, uh, she says, uh, she's like right out of college. Yeah. Mr. Byrne, I want to thank you for what you did for the women of this country. And he said, ma'am, my mother told me what I needed to do. So whenever you brought that up to Harry, especially in his older age, he would always give his mother the credit. Oh, I love this story, Ellen. And I especially love the outcome. It took us just seven episodes to get here. Took our foremothers more than seven decades. 
And think about the foremother of us all. Half a century after Susan B. Anthony was convicted for the crime of voting while female, that crime became a right. But not for all American women. The battle for the ballot was and is by no means over. Next time on She Votes. She Votes is produced by Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and the team at Wonder Media Network. To learn more about our battle for the ballot, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media, on Instagram at WMN.media, or on our website, SheVotesPodcast.com. Special thanks to Alan Alda. Thank you for listening. If you shrink into a corner when people start talking politics because you're afraid your knowledge gaps will be exposed, don't you worry. You are not alone. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And I'm Nick Capodice. We are the authors of A User's Guide to Democracy, How America Works. Starting September 7th, we'll be taking over the Quick and Dirty Tips Unknown History podcast. Over four weekly episodes, we're going to help you go from confused to confident. Subscribe to Unknown History wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.